Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code SPOTIFY at checkout. Welcome to We Have Ways 12 Days of Christmas Guests. We're talking to a famous face about their personal relationship with the Second World War. While you recover from Christmas dinner-related food comas, tuck into this brilliant and wide-ranging chat with none other than James May. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and we're very fortunate to have snagged this next guest in particular. Who are we talking to today, Jim? Well, he's one of the best-known people on television in Britain and around the world, I should probably say. Motoring journalist, star of Top Gear and now The Grand Tour and um, a, a zillion other TV documentaries beside. Um, it's none other than James Mayer, who's also weirdly, um, well, not weirdly, but, but coincidentally, I should say, uh, an almost neighbour. And me. So um, we're yes. strangely double neighbours, <laughs> strangely triangulated. Um, he, <laughs> it's decided to live uh, in proximity of both of us somehow. <laughs> but anyway, it's very nice to have you on, James, and thank you for thank you for joining us. No, thank you. Well, you were very generous with your introduction there. Um, I don't know what episode you're thinking this is going to be. It could be on the spike as we used to say in newspapers and magazines. <laughs> well, I do remember watching in one of your programmes, you were you were beetling around in a, uh, w- maybe you were in a, in a people's wagon, I'm not sure, people's car, um, but you were certainly in Prora um, yes. up on the Baltic coast, that really weird Nazi hotel. <laughs> yes, it was. Actually, I was in Dr. Robert Lye's personal beetle, which was a bit creepy, wow. to be honest. Oh, my God. I didn't want anybody to think I was in any way aligned with his foreign or domestic policies or anything like that. No, no, um, no. But as a piece of history, obviously, it was a very early Beetle, actually made by Porsche in Stuttgart because it would have yep. been built before the KDF factory in Wolfsburg was complete. Yeah. Um, so uh, an incredibly valuable um, history-laden and slightly disturbing artefact. But the correct way to arrive at Prora, obviously, uh, if you didn't go on a KDF cruise ship, I suppose. And I think since <laughs> we went, which is best part of 10 years ago now, um, they've done quite a bit of restoration work on it. Uh, but when I was there, it was still largely the ruin that it, well, that it had always been, to be honest, because let's be honest, it never functioned properly. But no. they completed a few rooms, a few family rooms using artifacts of the time, right down to the KDF board game and the KDF radio and the yep. KDF bog roll and the KDF sheets and all the, all the rest of it. And it was, <laughs> yeah, absolutely fascinating. A, a colossal place in a, yeah. to be honest, slightly unlikely spot when you compare it with, 
I don't know, the Costa del Sol. You can see why <laughs> why Spain triumphed in holidays. <laughs> yes, I've been there in I've been there in winter and uh, uh in, in February. I've been filming there in winter and this wind comes in Not off Not at its best. You, yeah, I know. The wind comes in off the Baltic and you sort of think, um because sections of that were sort of nudist beaches and stuff, and you have this strand corb. This oh yeah, they were really into into uh, what do you call it? Sort of going nude, weren't they? Yeah, yes. yes fascists they... always are. They've always got a bit of a strange relationship with nudity. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to the Romans. Well, actually, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you're right about that. But but also Mussolini had these holiday homes as well, and I went to one up in up in somewhere in the South Tyrol, um, and you know it was incredibly remote. I mean, he was sort of climbing up, doing all these hairpins up and up and up and up and up and up, and eventually he sort of went. And then he crossed over this bridge, and it was a waterfall, and kind of kept going, and then the kind of road sort of ran out. And then you were on sort of, you know, cobbled, <laughs> kind of, you know, on a stone. It wasn't a Strada Bianca. It was just a, a stone track, which hikers go up. And then suddenly there was this clearing. It's this, this freaking huge, great, multi-story kind of, the sort of thing you would find on the Costa del Sol. Yes. But, but in the mountains <laughs> and made under the kind of, you know, under the instructions of Mussolini. And it was just completely bizarre and abandoned. And, and and it was just the weirdest thing. I mean, it made no sense on any scale whatsoever. No, I mean, I've, I've never been there. And you have to think about what was happening in, say, Britain at the time, because I think we'd only just, just prior to World War II, we had the Holidays Act, didn't we? Which is what mm. gave birth to Butlins and the like. Yes. And there, there is a... I don't know if this is substantiated, but there's a rumor that a lot of um, a lot of the Nazis' holiday camps and indeed concentration camps were, to some extent, modelled on Butlins. Or was it the other way around? <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, <laughs> so I suppose holidays were grim in the in the 30s, but <laughs> even so, I think it, it might be a fundamental failing of the fascist movement that they didn't quite get what a holiday was about. It, it, they seem to have regarded it as something that was supposed to improve you or set you free, and they didn't realise that what you actually wanted was some fairly reliable weather and double egg and chips, which yeah. is you know what made the, the first package tours for the British so popular. Not going to the Baltic coast. <laughs> yeah, and doing calisthenics in a cold breeze, isn't it? Yeah. Is the, it, it but then, but then a, a lot of the sort of fascist thrust was sort of to be outdoorsy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, it? no, you, you get your rucksack on and go hiking and and do sort of, you know, vaulting over people, bending over and all that kind of stuff. There's lots of that, wasn't there? Yeah, it's nudity, bunting, community singing, <laughs> exercise, <laughs> yeah, walking and cycling. Because apparently some of those, again, in the 30s, well, it might have even gone back as far as the late 20s, but cycle touring became very popular mm. uh, with young Germans, and they liked particularly to cycle in France and England. And supposedly, they were actually very elaborately disguised spying missions. All these people wow. in, in um, medium-length shorts, riding around, <laughs> undoubtedly in formation on bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> making in a swarm. Exactly, in a swarm, yes. <laughs> going down the old Blanford Road, exactly. James, to go back to uh, Robert, Robert Lies VW would have been one of the only few made before the war because the thing was basically a Ponzi scheme, wasn't it? Oh, utterly, yes. I mean, it was the great rip-off of the, I think, largely innocent German working people because yeah. it was funded by the, the Green Shield Stamps equivalent savings scheme and the money went into building the, the KDF factory, what is now the Wolfsburg VW factory, 
which was then used to make things like V1s and bombs and yeah. tin helmets. So I, don't, I don't think any of the general public who contributed to the scheme ever got a car. No, I don't think they did, did they? The, uh, and no. the, the, the Nazi brass would get one. But if you were a, p- a punter who'd been contributing all this time, you didn't, did you? I was, no. I mean, it, I, I, because after all, they wanted the money for weapons and, well, and, and everything everything else everything else Nazi, basically. It's, well, yeah, it's why, it's why that factory was so heavily bombed, mainly by the Americans. I mean, they weren't, yeah. they weren't trying to rid the world of the Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> Admirable objective, though, that would have been. But <laughs> no, you're not a fan, then? <laughs> no, not really. I, I've often said that the VW Beetle is, in many ways, the worst car ever produced. Um, <laughs> but in terms of car history, it is actually the most interesting car the world has ever produced by quite a long way because i mean it started as a well it starts with probably a bit of theft from people like hans ledvinka in czechoslovakia Mm. and various other german designers some of whom were jewish and therefore um, repressed and then porsche came up with a sort of greatest hits of small car design ideas of which there were a lot in that period. Yeah. And then Hitler got involved and said it had to look like a beetle because he was obsessed with natural history and thought streamlining should be inspired by nature. And then it turned into a contract. Then it was rejected as a war reparation by Henry Ford, Lord Roots, the Australians, lots of other people who thought that the beetle was a hopeless car and the factory was too close to the new Iron Curtain. Yeah. And then it became the world's best-selling car, and then it became an icon of the hippie movement and was turned into the beach buggy. So Hitler's idea... Yes, and then Herbie goes bananas. And then Herbie goes bananas. So it's, it sort of starts with fascism and ends up with flower power and surf Nazis. So it's I mean, Nazis to Nazis. It's very really weird. weird, isn't it? I mean, It what is. A- <laughs> it's a tremendous story. Well, then in the middle of it, the, uh, the, the British Army re- reviving the factory and getting the whole thing going post-war as well. So I- Ivan Hurst coming in uh, and, and getting it back up on its feet. Well, the weird thing is it's... I've never been able to entirely substantiate this, but the rumour is that when Hearst got to the factory, he only found the remains of one beetle in the wreckage. It had been very heavily bombed, but he found the remains of one, and he found enough drawings and bits of tooling and surviving Germans, including King Nordhoff, who was the key to all this, to get the thing back into production. And, of course, he was only really making it... um, to provide basic transport, the sort of car equivalent of the Honda Super Cub, to the occupying forces. So he was going to make a few thousand, and then they said, well, you better make 20,000. And then they ended up giving the the whole restored lot back to the Germans, effectively as a nationalised industry, and then it became the world's best-selling car. So we're the mugs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, who says the British can't make successful cars? I mean, that's the, Quite. the, the other <laughs> thing, isn't it? So pretty, pretty perfectly capable of making success, cars successfully, but in Germany. Yeah. There's a multiple ir- ironies colliding there, aren't there? But 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 what is it you don't like like about the Beetle? I mean, I, I feel completely agnostic about it, if I'm brutally honest. But I, um, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it the engine in the back? Is it the fact that it's just tinny? Is it the fact that it just constantly breaks down? I mean, what? what, what? They, they don't really break down. They are. They don't. Incredibly reliable, and the design was intended to be adaptable, which is why it became the Schwimmwagen and the Kubelwagen. They're all Beetle-based cars. Air cooling was very good, especially in places like the desert. Mm -hmm. Um, Very reliable, very easy to service. The problem for me is it comes with a great deal of sociological baggage 
all the way from do you secretly like Hitler to are you a surfer? You know, all of these things. Are... <laughs> it makes a terrible noise. Uh, they're loud, quite, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're loud. I've, I must admit, I've got a beach buggy right. on the quiet, and it is based, you know, all beach buggies are based on a shortened VW Beetle platform and suspension. And the underpinnings of mine are very old. I mean, most of it's new, but the basic engine case, the floor pan, and the suspension members are from about 1955. So it's a very early, mm. wow. um, nationalized, if you like, VW. And it is still technically, as far as the registration document is concerned, a Beetle. There you are. I've huh. said it. I've, I've, I've come out. <laughs> Revealing secrets on weird ways of making you talk. We've made you talk. Yeah. I'm very excited. Um, so, so if you, I mean, from, from a car point of view, I mean, in Nazi Germany, there were some pretty A1 cars coming out. Yeah, was- you know, do you, do you, do you have a personal soft spot or does the, does the socio, sociology that comes with it just sort of black mark the whole lot of them? No, it's, um, it's just the Beetle. <laughs> to be honest, I think it – I mean, I'm not much of a classic car buff, or I, I don't really like old cars because I just think modern cars are better. But yeah. German engineering uh, in that period was fabulous, all the way from, you know, clock-making, toy-making, armaments, cars, aeroplanes, which we, I'm sure we'll come on to. That's all great. And I, I own German cars and, have, and motorcycles. I think the biggest problem with the Beetle – is not actually its its fascist heritage. It's the sort of people who own Beatles now, <laughs> because they talk about them uh, um, in sort of hushed tones, and they say, "Well, of course, mine is the sixteen oh two, very rare, whatever." And I think few things in life are are less rare than a VW Beetle. I mean, individual baked beans, maybe, or. Wire coat hangers, but people think they've got something incredibly special. I want to say, no, it is the world's best selling single platform car by some margin. So, yeah, I mean, it's more than more than 15 million, isn't it? It's, I I think, including the Mexican production and all the rest of it, it's about 21. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, it's a lot of car, and they're all pretty much the same. Toyota say the Corolla is a you know is a bigger selling car. It's a bigger selling name, but it's been on I can't can't remember six seven generations of car that are all yeah. quite fundamentally different. Whereas yeah. all of the Beetles, the window shape changed and the lights grew, and a few bits of kit like I don't know a, a radio or a heater were added. But it is basically the car that Porsche designed in the nineteen thirties, and it's remarkable, really remarkable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially as it's terrible. I mean, you touched on the idea that German engineering, I mean, aircraft engineering is, is the thing that really, where people look at the competition between the Allies and the, and, and the British, and there are some proper red herrings, uh, and then other things that are undeniably brilliant. And I remember we, years and years ago, we, we, we got on the subject to Kurt Tank and the uh, the FW one ninety, um, mm. uh, which you you seem to you seem to be a fan of. I mean, is is are there aircraft from this era that you you know and designers where you think this this guy's the fellow making the running or what he's doing is really interesting? Well, every, everyone should have the Kurt Tank story in their uh, in their library. Yeah, I think Kurt, Kurt Tank is a, a very interesting, uh, quite radical thinker. But mm. I think Vili Messerschmitt. Um, uh, he did make some mistakes, undoubtedly, but also did some fabulous things. 
German aero engine technology was amazing and in many ways miles ahead. I mean, the reason fuel injection on cars was pushed hardest by people like Bosch, who are still world leaders, is because I think so much work was done on it in the late 20s and throughout the 1930s. Mm. Um, but I think World War II aeroplanes, that of which I am particularly fond, are the Hawker Hurricane. I, I like the Hurricane Spitfire, the 109 and the 190. Those are, you know, those are obvious ones. I'm, I have a soft spot for the BF-110, despite the many criticisms of it. I love the Curtis P-40, and I really love the Mitsubishi A6M-0. That's another really fascinating aeroplane because the Japanese thought about what they wanted it to be able to achieve and effectively seemed to have looked at the size of the landmass they would have to conquer and patrol with it and then made sacrifices in some areas to improve it in others. So we know famously it had no self-sealing tanks. It didn't have any armor. It was notoriously fragile, but it was very fast, fabulously maneuverable, Gave the pilot great visibility and had a and range, an incredible range, yeah, incredible range, range that, that led to you know real confusion amongst the Americans because they couldn't believe. I mean, they started trying to work out where Japanese air bases were that weren't there. It's simply that the Zero could fly twice as far <laughs> as their fighters. Well, and the other thing is, is the pilots at the start, you know, from by 1937. You know the pilots are just exceptional. You know you, you're not even getting near a, a, a zero until you've got 500 hours in your logbook. No, you know, whereas you know a Luftwaffe pilot in the Battle of Britain, if you have 150, 170 maybe, but not more than that when they're first arriving at their squadron. You know, so 500 lot, and you know the discipline required. You know, it's absolutely brutal training. Yes, um, and so they're absolutely superb. So it doesn't matter that they're not well armoured. Uh, and they're very fragile because the pilots are just so much better than anybody else they're going to come up with. So they can, you know, they're not getting shot down. But then inevitably there's attrition. And then, you know, it's all out war and they can't sustain that level of training. And then you've got a then you've got a plane that's fragile with not very good pilots. And of course, that's a catastrophe. Yes. And especially once, you know, you've got things like the F6, F6F Hellcat. Yeah. Which is fabulously well armed and very fast. I mean, the Wildcat had a pretty tough time against the Zero. And as you say, it didn't really matter that the Zero wasn't well-armoured because nobody ever got in a position to shoot at it, really. Um, but once, you know, things like the Hellcat were on the scene, the, the Zero got a bit of a mauling. It's another of those aeroplanes that was never significantly updated. That's it. It's sort of flat lines, doesn't it? And that's, yeah. the same, that's the problem with the 109, really. I mean, I know it, it does a- get updated, but, but the Zenith of the 109 is probably the Emil. And, yeah, and- it's, it's interesting if you read uh, people like Heinz Nocker and so on. They, they, yes. you know, they become critical of the 109 as it goes, you know, especially to the F and the G versions. It's much more powerful, but they become even trickier to handle, and they kill it, even it, more novice Luftwaffe pilots because they've only yeah. got fifty hours, and then they they bin it on landing, and the landing yeah. speed is high, and yeah, yep. it's a huge right. number of them lost in accidents. I find it impossible not to like Heinz Nocker, even though I know he's a Nazi, but just because of his <laughs> sheer determination to keep getting back in a plane despite yeah. being shot down. I think something like nine times in the course yeah, of his Yeah, I know, diary. I love him. I think the, best, just- the best bit of I flew for the Führer is the, is the bit towards <laughs> the end when he's becoming very disillusioned and he, he takes off. It's in a 109, I think, so it mm. will be a probably a Gustav. And he intercepts um, a PR Spitfire at some enormous altitude and manages to shoot it down or damage it very badly, and the Spitfire's going down, and he's circling it going, get out, Tommy, get out, Tommy, because he doesn't want the bloke to die. 
because he knows it's all futile. Yeah. And it's, it's at that point I thought, if you rewrote this as a commando war story in pictures, he would be the good Nazi, you know? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, although yeah, yeah, he does yeah. go on and pursue a career in, uh, tried to pursue a career in the 1950s in right-wing politics. But, but yes. I kind of, you know. <laughs> but we'll ignore but, that. <laughs> we'll ignore that. The bit I like was where he where he's got he's got Feldvelbel Kruger has just arrived and he's the sort of latest recruit with kind of, you know, fourteen hours in his logbook or something ludicrous. I mean it's obviously not as bad as that. And he says, Whatever you do, you know, stick to me like glue, that old old adage. And they go off and they and there's a there's there are the flying fortresses and they go and attack it and he thinks, Oh, amazing. Kruger's shot one down and he's on his first pass. How brilliant. Maybe this guy's going to be okay. And literally five seconds later, following on the tail of the stricken B seventeen, which is plunging earthwards is Feldwebel Kruger doesn't get out you know his 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 Messerschmitt's on fire and and Knocker follows him down and suddenly realizes that Kruger has crashed into the very same field where he went to a recruitment fair by the Luftwaffe on the edge of Hamlin in 1939 God. and he then flies over the town of Hamlin which is his hometown and there's not a soul to be seen because of course there's an air you know the planes are overhead and so they're all in their cellars or whatever and it's incredibly moving I mean re- really incredibly so uh, and it, it, as I say it's just impossible not to kind of um, have a little bit of affection for him despite him being a Nazi <laughs> yes <laughs> there is room in our hearts for the old Nazi quite, I think so quite the qualification Jim <laughs> Well, I, well, you know, I met Hyo Hairman, who was yeah, a proper yeah, Nazi, yeah. And, it, and you know, I had no affection for him whatsoever. I mean, he was just absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah. He was a he was a one ninety fan. I have to say, founded, well, they're, the, they're, founded the Wilderzau. They're you know, amazing. The, uh, they're the amazing fighters. aircraft, though, aren't they? The the, the one ninety is an extraordinary bit of kit, isn't it? Yes, yeah. sort of corrects all the all the possible flaws that the one hundred nine had. I think it's it's like taking a long look at what you need to sort out. Wide undercarriage. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. It's funny enough, I was reading a bit about the 190 a few days ago, and it is it is quite remarkable that, um, I mean, it included a lot of electrical systems. It had rigid controls, so rods rather than cables, So you and, and nice big ailerons, because one of the problems with the 109 was it required huge stick forces, but that was coupled with the most cramped cockpit of any World War II fighter, <laughs> which meant that you had to be incredibly strong you know, to roll it at speed because you couldn't get your elbow out to push the stick sideways. They reckon that that, that the a typical 109 pilot could exert only something like 40% of the stick pressure in a 109 than he would have been able to if he'd been in a Spitfire or Hurricane. Wow. And that was coupled That's with a higher amazing. wing loading. I've yeah. never heard um, that. That's so, incredible. So the, the 190 got around that by much more powerful controls and a bigger, much better laid out cockpit. Yeah. Um, it didn't overdo the wing loading, didn't have those nasty automatic slap things that terrified all the 109 pilots, and also had a wing shape that gave it a, an absolutely fabulous roll rate, which is what worried the British, which is why they, you know, the Spitfire 5 was hopelessly outclassed by the, the early 190Ds and so on. And then they started mucking around with clipping the wings for, you know, roll performance at low level, so you didn't get aileron reversal and so on because the Spitfire wing would twist. So it's, it's, it's remarkable in some ways. I think the, the the 190 was definitely a quantum leap forward in yeah. fighter design. Yeah. It's yeah. funny, though, because there's, they've got one at, at Cosford, um, uh, obviously a static one. And, and you look at it, it's really, really rough around the edges. It's, yeah. it's not that kind of sort of precision engineering that you kind of that we all know and love from, from the Nazi era. 
um it's 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 really rough you know panels are kind of you know on the on the engine cannon don't quite fit and you yeah know, it's, it's uh, there's gaps and you know it's all it's, it's, all- it's very interesting when you look at a lot of those 1930s and 40s aircraft the 109 in some ways is an exception because the way the fuselage is is mated is is quite clever and, and in fact it does have a seam on it which is where people making models of them go wrong because they fill the seam in on the yeah. fuselage of the 109 but it actually should be there for once because <laughs> that's how it was made but 109 apart if you look at other things i mean if you stand close to a spitfire it's quite disappointing because when you view it as a whole and you watch it flying it's this beautiful shape every single curve you know, interpenetrates with every other one. There's no corners on it. it. It almost looks like it was made out of a single piece of putty that was squeezed into shape. But you get it close to it, and it's made of thousands of little itsy bits riveted together <laughs> yeah. and bashed yeah. into place. And I just say, it's all wrinkly, and you know, there's gaps and edges and chips and scratches. They just, it just looks like a school metalwork project. <laughs> I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. The RF Museum have got a they've got a Fokker Wolf 190 which landed. It's completely intact. It's never been touched since the, since the end of the Second World War, and it's a two seater. Yes, and it's just not been touched. And I remember I remember the uh, talking to Ian Thurk, who, who was the old old curator there, and he's saying, "Well, you know, if someone you know if someone wanted to make us an offer, we'd be quite interested in." Uh, no, they mustn't do that. That was the one that flew. The, I can't remember the pilot's name. Accidentally he, flew into sort of Wales or something. And landed yes, in he the, flew the reciprocal on his Verge Compass, didn't he? Because yeah, which he did, is very yeah. easy to do. But there's also um, see, I don't think they should touch that. There was the and I'm not quite sure what happened to this in the end. The Spitfire, there was a Spitfire 1A hanging in the main entrance of the Imperial War Museum that had been put there, I think, 
or it had been rescued in 1941. So it's a Battle of Britain era aeroplane. Yeah. It's hanging from the ceiling. Was it 609? Yeah. And it's all, because it's hung on the ceiling for such a long time, it's twisted. Um, and, you know, there was a move at one point. People said, oh, we should restore it to flying condition. But you shouldn't because you will inevitably replace 80% of it if you do that. And the way it is now, it's actually got 1940 oil stains on it. Yeah, and, and it's an invaluable agree. resource, and it's you can make a new Spitfire if you really want to fly one. That one and that FW one ninety and that very early Emil they've got at the Royal Air Force Museum. Leave Don't them. touch them, dust them occasionally, but nothing else. Yeah, leave them well, alone. The, the thing is, is restored Spitfires are all they're basically they're basically new aircraft, aren't they? They're, they're, yeah, um, even the Johnny Johnson Spitfire is yeah. largely new. Yeah, it's yeah. impossible to. It's impossible to do it otherwise because in order for it to be declared airworthy, the vast majority of the rivets are going to have to be replaced. The spars are going to have to be taken out and replaced. The engine's going to have to be rebuilt. You're going to have to put some modern avionics in it. You've got to take the radioactive stuff off the instrument, face it. You know, you end up with a new aeroplane. Yeah. Well, they have a similar problem with that mo- with the Mosquito in Lincolnshire that, that you know, mm. there's just no way of knowing if, that, that, if that's airworthy at all. So you'd, you'd, have to, you'd just have to build a new one. Yeah, and you may as well. If people want to see that shape flying, yeah. build a new yeah. one. Leave the yeah. original in the museum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I completely agree with that one about the in the Imperial War Museum, and it's fantastic because it is a bit bashed and it's and it's and, and the paint's chipped, and as you say, it's got the oil stains and all the rest of it. And it's also incredibly emotive because that was flown by um, one of the pilots of that plane was John Dundas, who was um, Hugh Cocky Dundas's brother, who, yeah. who shot down Helmut Vick in the Solent, and 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 then was promptly shot down in turn. He said, I've got him. And then, you know, <laughs> that was his last words. That was the, that's the equivalent of saying, watch this before you do a stunt on telly, isn't it? It's always <laughs> yeah, a mistake. Exactly. So, he, so he then went into the drink too, and, and, and there he remains. But, but he flew that plane, and, and it's, you know, it's just amazing to think, I think. You know, mm. really, really yeah, really the, the ghosts will go if you restore it. It's the same with, you know, old buildings and so on. Absolutely. Just, just leave them. And you need some ghosts. You need yeah. ghosts. James, to change the subject slightly, how are you getting on with your ambulance? Ah, with, with your K two? Um, oh, it's not up here. I've I've taken it down to my garage because I was, I was attempting to paint it with an airbrush. Oh, really? You've yeah. got, you've got you've, you're trying that on, are you? Yeah, but you know what? I, <laughs> you've got to learn to thin the paint correctly, and make, if yep. you get that wrong, it either clogs up or it just comes out as dribble. Yeah, and it's ruinous. When you get it right, it, it's remarkable. But I actually. It destroys part of the fun for me because I have my little yeah. fix table there, and it takes yeah. me just years to make one because I sit at this desk doing my homework, supposedly. Yeah. And occasionally I think, oh, I'll bugger this. And I go over there for 10 minutes and, and paint one little bit yeah. or stick one little bit on. Yeah. And I do it with, you know, little tubes of glue and the little brush yeah. glue and, and, and paint brushes and the little pots. Yeah. And that's nice because you can do a bit at a time. If you want to do the airbrush, you have to sort of think, right – Airbrush yes. time, clean everything, get everything lined up, and you have to sort of devote <laughs> a, an hour. Sort of need a sweet for it, don't you, as well? To yeah, extract you do. The fumes and all that <laughs> yeah, sort of stuff. The, yeah, the yeah. bloody paint goes everywhere. Because and- <laughs> uh, yeah, because uh, I, I very much got back into uh, making stuff during the pandemic. Because you know, I was suddenly, suddenly, sort of grounded from touring, and um, and I, I, one of my daughters has since moved out, so her room has gone over to being the 
the room that smells of paint. Oh, really? But You've got your own model studio I've now. got my own model studio now, That's yeah. That's very strong. Did she agree to this? Or no, 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 no. It's, uh. just, it's, just, it's just happened. And, you know, things like the rowing machine have ended up in that room. and all. It's, it ended up, it's basically a dumping ground, and I've been dumped in there with my hobby. And, uh, but Sounds I, like I, the perfect life. <laughs> well, it, it, it suits, suits me 100%. We're doing the thing with the listeners where we're going to build an entire regiment of Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry uh, Sherman tanks and ancillary vehicles. And uh, Levin Stewart's. That's a big job. It is, because last last year, one of the listeners who's a modeler, he, he 3D printed a whole regiment, but in the little wargaming size. So in, in you know, in, in whatever oh, yes. the, whatever scale that is. So we decided that the, what we should do for next year, for this festival we do in September, is do, is do a regiment in 135th. And it's, we're getting there. There was a lot of, there was a lot of argy-bargy about who got to make the fireflies. Everyone wanted to do sort of glamour tanks. Um, uh, and now it's now it's settled into just lots and lots of Shermans. It's fantastic. I, I, I'm interested in this idea because ever since I was a kid, when I was obsessed with Airfix, I and you, you could only ever afford one at a time back yeah. then, obviously. Yeah. And I almost did it on Toy Stories with the Ford Model T kit from Airfix, which is an ancient yeah. bit of tooling. But I've wanted to try and productionize it as you know, as a production yeah. line with everybody with the job, and then yeah tanks or aeroplanes coming off the other end. And I proposed this idea to the BBC. It must have been a few years back because it was at a, an anniversary. Yeah. But it was called, and they really liked it until the last minute when they decided they didn't, and it was called The Battle of Britain in Airfix. And it was a two-part documentary, <laughs> the first of which was about how you made all the models. Yeah. all of Everything relevant to The Battle of Britain is available from the Airfix range. And then – the second part, the second hour, which I wanted to be on the next evening, was a, a deadly serious documentary with historians involved telling, you know, the truth, the updated, the, the, the revised history mm. story of the Battle of Britain, but the whole thing animated with airfix models, right down to, you know, balls of cotton wool being lit with lighter fuel to make them blow up. And <laughs> I just, I would have taken years to do, but I thought it would be such great fun. Yeah, it would have been fantastic. Yeah, it would have been amazing. One of the most enjoyable bits of television I've, I've, I've seen in the last 20 years was the when you recreated Brooklands with the scale electrics. Oh, God, yeah, that was painful. It, but, it was, it, but it was actually really quite moving in a, in a funny <laughs> way. Was it? Yes, it was. It really was. I remember feeling, feeling quite sort of wistful about the whole thing and, and what might have been and on the, the little bits of bank there still were. And then you had to kind of bridge an A road, I seem to remember. Yeah, we did all sorts of stupid things. It was really, it was really fun. It was fun. And moving and 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 touching. Well, and the, the one time. the one to one scale airfix Spitfire. So similarly, because I was it was a, a ho- massive hobby for me when I was a lad, and to see to see one someone acting out the idea that you yeah. could you, that you you could and should do this was f- quite fantastic. The whole premise of that that series, which I did enjoy making, and thank you for watching it, um, was that when you are a child, so you take anything airfix Lego. When you're a child, you have unbounded imagination, but no real resources because no parent would understand that you need 50 Spitfires, not just yeah. one. When you're an adult, the imagination has fled, but you do have the wherewithal to buy 50 Spitfires. So, I, so the, the, the basic premise was we'll put ourselves in the mind of a 12-year-old, but with the clout of a 
whatever I was then, 45-year-old. So, yes, we will buy 3 million Lego bricks, and we, we will buy as many Airfix models as we want, because we can. <laughs> yeah, I spent a very balmy evening sitting next to the Lego house in Denby's winery with some friends once. It was quite nice, wasn't it? It was very pleasant, very pleasant, yeah. but also sort of quite extraordinary to see this is, I mean, this is partly what we're doing with this, with this regiment project is, you know, I've built a troop of Shermans because I can buy five now or four yes. if yep. I want. There's, there's nothing to, nothing to stop me. Just as you say, I mean, I used to have a, I remember having a little, you know, on a piece of plywood, a little, a little airfield marked out and you couldn't have, you know, there'd be a whirlwind and a spitfire and a hurricane and a, Vought Corsair for some reason all there because yeah. you, you couldn't because because that's what they had in the in the village shop at the yeah. time and you you couldn't have like like you say thirty Mark V Spitfires but the th- the thing is is if this is oversubscribed we may end up making the whole brigade. Well, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all I mean, it's, it would be great to have the whole Sherwood Rangers, but it, but but how much better to have the you know where, where are you going to put them when they're done. Well, that's the question. We haven't, we've not thought further than the festival where they'll, where it'll be sort of unveiled with a tada moment. There's not been a, there's not been a discussion of, you know, do we bring the Imperial War Museum and tell them we've bequeathed them this thing that'll take up tons of space? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe the National Army Museum. We can talk to them on Thursday, but it's, um, I think it'd be fantastic. And also, we're going to have some um, some some vehicles which are done up in Sherwood Rangers colours as well, because we've got a Sherwood Rangers Sherman tank. Um, Real and, ones, you mean? Yeah, and, and mm. two Sherwood Rangers um, half-tracks. So Sounds great. I, I've, I've often thought with um, – I thought it back in the days of this, which I'm just going to look at for a moment because it makes me feel quite melancholy. But <laughs> – I've never done this, but I always wanted to experiment with the idea of getting um, – it used to be called isopom when we were kids, but basically acrylic resin in liquid form with a hardener. You know, you used to make a paperweight or something, and you put, you put a dead butterfly in it or something like that. If you made the square mould, could I put this in and turn it into a doorstop or a paperweight? So Ooh, it would be preserved. Uh, that's, that's a great idea. I'm sure you could. So that, so that it would be preserved forever because it could never be damaged. Yeah. So I just uh, the other thing I thought of was if you if you make your hundred and whatever it is Shermans and so on, if there was a path through a garden or something where you could make a very a very neat very waterproof say concrete trench, yeah, and lay all your little tanks in formation in there and then have it sealed <laughs> over with glass so that people would walk along the tank path and they would be there you know for <laughs> thousands of years perfectly preserved. Yeah, that's really brilliant. That's a brilliant idea. Because I've got, I've got um I've got the one to twenty four Spitfire Mark Five up on my shelf, and the problem is, is you know I did that fifteen years ago or whatever, and bits have fallen off, and I've lost. Of course, them. yeah, the yeah. glue glue sort of comes undone. Yeah, I mean, you know, Al's very kindly gave me uh, gave me a Sherman Firefly done, and you know, it's sat up on my shelf. But it has to be really high because otherwise it's going to get dinged, and you know, the barrel's going to fall off or some of the stowage or whatever. You know, but yes. putting it in resin. That is genius. I mean, seriously, could one do that? Well, I don't uh, – um, let's not get too nerdy, but I have been researching <laughs> for a bit. You can buy on eBay and from various other places. It generally comes from sort of art supplies places rather yeah. than, rather than uh, model shops. But you can buy, I think it's five litres of clear acrylic resin with hardener. Now, the things I don't know – I don't. I don't think it would attack the plastic. Well, that that would be that. Was, that pain. was my thought. Is would it react with the plastic or set the glue off or 
or whatever. Is there only, really only one way to find out? Well, exactly. And does it? I think it probably gets. So, warm. what would you do? Plonk it in a kind of ice cream, an old ice cream tub. Well, I think you'd make a you'd make a mold. You'd make a simple box mold out of plywood sheets, say. Yeah. And you'd you'd, um, you'd have to varnish them or coat them with wax so that it didn't soak in. And then you'd you'd fill it to say, I don't know, an inch. Put your Spitfire or your ambulance or whatever on. Then you'd have to you can, you can fill it in stages because the, the line will disappear. Then you'd fill it a bit more to lock it in place so that it so that it's not going to float away. I've thought about this far too much. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then slowly fill it, but then you want it sitting on on something vibrating like the top of your spin dryer so that it shakes the bubbles out because it would be awful if it worked but you had a great big air bubble there or there and i think yeah. you'd have to mix the the resin so that it had a very slow set time yeah because if you make it set quickly it gets hot and if it got hot it might distort the yeah as you say there's only one way to find out we'd make yeah. make a basic spitfire and roughly paint it and then stick it in and see what happens to it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, what a shall, shall brilliant I do idea! <laughs> That's a I brilliant idea, that. James. That's a fantastic yeah. idea. Yeah, it's a, it's oh. a solution to all your fragile model kit problems. Yeah, they could live outside. Yeah, they could be garden ornaments. Live wherever you like. They could be, a, as you say, it could be a doorstop. It could be a paperweight. Paperweight. Whatever. Well, our producer has just popped up and said the answer is yes. I saw it on Facebook recently. As in, oh. it works. So someone seems someone's done it. Damn. That's quite annoying. The, the, it is. The, the other the other fashion at the moment is for painting the model while it's still on the sprue and finishing it on the sprue. Oh, and I then, don't do that. And then putting it in a, then putting it in a case. Oh, I see. Oh, that's quite interesting. So, yeah, it's, so it's a deconstructed artwork. Yeah, exa- exactly, exactly, exactly. So it's still on the so Messerschmitt's still on the sprue, but 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 completely finished. Um, they look rather striking, and they're put in a picture frame. They, 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 they look rather. They're... I might try that. And a real reminder of you know the getting the sprue out and what what that you know that moment the when sprue you first... being the frame on which all the yeah, bits yeah. sorry to get technical on it, Jim. Yeah, but no, that's um, right, when, it's fine. when you when Check you really away. when you first, I mean, it's that thing thing of it's like opening the action man box and the smell of the hair. Um, it's <laughs> that's <laughs> properly pervy. Oh god! When they did when they when, well about ten years ago they did a fiftieth anniversary re-release and there's a shop there was a shop in Car Shulton or somewhere that had made that had made a. You know, a thou- thousands of action men in China, and they were exactly the same. When you opened the box, it was the same, the same smell. Of oh, they got the and- smell right. That's good because yeah. smell is a very evocative sense, isn't it? Yeah. When you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that about some old books. They smell like they s- still smell like they smelled when I was fifteen, and it yeah. takes me back immediately. Yeah, yeah. I've got a I've got a book that a, an old desert rat veteran gave me, and he smoked sixty a day. And every time I pick up his book, it still smells of stale fags. That's quite nice. And, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a horrible smell, but it re- just reminds me of of Albert. Ah, brilliant. Ah. Well, well, James, this has been a fantastic chat around the house. Yeah, it's been great. Hasn't Are it? you going to when you finish your ambulance? You're going to post pictures of it on on Twitter for people to perv on. I'm certainly going to when I'm mine's done. I'm going to do exactly that. Yeah, I think I probably will um, because. Well, I've already put one on of work in progress, yeah. so people will be saying to me, "Have you done the ambulance yet?" It's probably going to be. About this time next year, that it's finished, <laughs> unless I really put my back into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, a little bit, a bit of modelling, modelling time in, in the Christmas holes. Well, yeah. I possibly could, yeah. But I don't. It's one of those. It's a bit like good books that I read when I was a teen. I don't want it to end in yeah. some ways because I, you know, I've become emotionally invested in this pile of annoying plastic bits and little pots yeah. of paint. Yeah, I put. I do put off finishing them. I have to say, mm. do you? I'll start another one and then have them kind of 
I mean, to you be know, honest, I never, I never properly finished this look because I never put the, I never got the number triple naught paintbrush and put the tiny dot of silver in the headlights, which I should have done, <laughs> and I should have put some, you know, a bit more wash on the radiator grill to make it look used. So, you know, it's still work in progress and has been for forty-seven years. Fantastic! <laughs> what a wonderful thing. Oh, brilliant. Well, thanks very much, James, for talking to us. We hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Yes, um, and you. I'm sorry we didn't get on to the Heinkel 177 or the Miles <laughs> N52, but we, we can do that on a future date. We'll have you back. <laughs> we, we'd love you to come back on and we can talk about I, I'm very happy to talk about the Heinkel 177 until I'm blue in the face. It's, <laughs> okay. uh, it's, it's, it's a pet a pet love-hate of mine. Well we'll, yeah. well, we'll, we'll, we'll get you back on to talk about that then, James, at some okay. point. Okay, we've got a date. I'll be sad. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. We've been talking to James May. Um, we'll see you all soon. Have a very Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.